Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Meditation Studio, and now our partner, Muse. I'm Patricia Karpus. In this series, we introduce you to real people with extraordinary stories and experts who share how meditation and mindfulness practices change our lives. Our podcast is brought to you by Meditation Studio, Apple's pick as one of the 10 best apps of the year, and Muse, the amazing brain-sensing headband that gives you real feedback on your meditation practice. You can download the Meditation Studio app in the App Store. Check out over 400 meditations on everything from sleep, stress, and anxiety to happiness, confidence, and relationships from more than 45 of the world's best teachers. And don't forget to try our eight free meditations on Alexa. And we hope you'll check out Muse at ChooseMuse.com. Last week, I introduced you to our new Untangle host, Ariel Garten, the co-founder of Muse. Ariel has studied neuroscience, been a psychotherapist, and an artist. I'm excited to hear her get inside the heads of other mind-brain experts from all different disciplines. We'll hear one brainiac talk to another. If you've ever wondered how your brain works, you won't want to miss these episodes. You'll be hearing from Ariel twice a month moving forward. I'm sure you will love her. Thank you, Patricia. Hello, I'm Ariel. And I'm going to be your guide inside the head of some of the world's most extraordinary neuroscientists, psychotherapists, meditators, those who are skilled in the mental arts. And we'll learn both from their cutting edge work, as well as their own human experience, how it is that our brains work, how to optimize your brain's function, and how to manage the crazy in all of our minds. Today, we're going to get inside the head of the extraordinary Dr. Rudy Tanzi. Rudy is a phenomenal neuroscientist. He's one of Time's 100 most influential people of the year for his discoveries in the field of Alzheimer's. And he's also an incredible Hammond B3 organ player. He plays with Joe Perry, Aerosmith, and more. Today, we're going to get inside his amazing brain and learn from it. Welcome, Rudy. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Absolute pleasure to have you. So to begin with, you had an extraordinary career in the world of Alzheimer's. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into it? What was the beginning of this discovery for you? Well, I first got into human genetics at the really at the beginning of the uh, revolution in human genetics. I was really a kid. I was about 20 years old, and my mentor was a few years older. He was 25, Jim Gasella. We carried out the first experiments to find a disease gene using genetics. So it had never been done before. This was back in the early 80s. Wow. So I decided... I was going to genetically map a chromosome, a human chromosome from end to end for the first time. And I picked the smallest chromosome because I was a student and wanted to get done fast. (laughs) So I picked chromosome number 21. And then it turned out all great because sure enough, the first Alzheimer's gene was on chromosome 21. And uh, in the process, my grandmother on my father's side came down with Alzheimer's while I was in this project. So all of a sudden it hit, hit me, you know, not just scientifically, but personally, at the same time. Wow. Okay, so we're talking about the Alzheimer's gene here. Where does the research stand on how much control we actually have over what's going to happen to our brain? How much of it is just left up to genetics and heredity? You are the sculptor of your neural network and of your genetics, but there's about 1% to 5% of genetics that is guaranteed. In other words, there are certain mutations that can cause Alzheimer's where it doesn't depend, unfortunately, it doesn't depend how you live your life. The first mutations we found in the first Alzheimer's genes 
the familial early onset mutations guarantee the disease. It doesn't matter how well you live your life. So there is that small, very minor percent of genetic variants that can guarantee a disease or guarantee a change in the brain that's unavoidable. But in 95 to 90% of our genetics and of our neural makeup, we're in charge. We get to sculpt it. But of course, even in that 5%, we can still look to science's solutions to attempt to manage the outcomes. Yeah. So you may have a gene that determines that you'll create an un, you know, untoward amount of amyloid beta, but you and your team, for example, are looking for ways to still manage that amyloid beta after your genes have determined that it shall be created. Exactly. So, so that's the hope is that you know, we have a drug we're working on that we're hoping to get into trials early next year that we know can turn down the amyloid deposition in the brain, the plaque deposition in the brain, even in people who carry these mutations that guarantee the disease by 50 or 60 years old. In some cases, these mutations cause the disease in a 20-year-old. These are hard-hitting mutations. But if you have this drug where we learned from what the mutations do that stops the effects of that gene, then you can ameliorate things with pharmacology that your lifestyle won't allow you to do. But I like to say in the vast majority of cases, if you make the right choices, your lifestyle makes the difference and you, you know, you don't need those drugs. But in some cases, you know, you do. In some cases, you, you know, you, you need them. But, you know, we like to say, look, sometimes you have to go to the doctor. Sometimes you have to get pharmacology and get drugs. But try every single day to not have to do that. You know, it may be inevitable sometimes. But concentrate on healing yourself every day. Every single day, thanks to your brain, you have the right to make choices. Choices then determine your experiences. Experiences repeated create habits. Habits then program your genes. Habits actually program your gene activity, your gene expression. And basically, good habits make for healthy gene expression that makes you healthy, and bad habits don't. Junk food leads to bad gene programming that is going to cause more inflammation in your body. So the choices you make and experiences you have, the habits you develop, directly program your genes and your neural networks that determine your health. And to not take advantage of that is really uh, depriving yourself. And to take advantage of that, it just means you make the choice to make choices at every moment about what you're going to do in your life. Can we drill down for a second on how habits change genes? Most people will sort of hear that as a, okay, but won't really understand the science behind it. So can you give us an example of how a habit actually from the sort of core molecular level, changes your gene and your gene expression? Yeah, so this was um, the entire topic of the book Supergenes that I wrote with Deepak Chopra. And we explained that while your DNA is inherited from mom and dad, and you're not going to change the DNA, you know, that you get 3 billion bases of DNA like beads on a string, you're not going to change that. Well, the DNA is packaged into genes. So if you picture your genome, picture that double helix. Mm-hmm which is like a twisted ladder, and then picture the, the, the steps on the ladder, right? There are 3 billion of them. Well, only about 2 or 3% of those actually make up genes. The other 97 or 98% is the stuff in between. We used to call it junk DNA. But it's not junk. It's useful. It's controlling the gene expression or activity. Well, your habits affect how that DNA, especially in and around genes, is chemically modified by chemical reactions like methylation, mm-hmm. acetylation. The, the fact is, 
that there are genetic modifications that are brought about by chemical treatments of your DNA. Your body actually chemically modifies DNA in certain cells to change gene expression. So picture now, you have 22,000 or so genes, and picture like a rheostat or a thermostat. You can turn them up or down in activity in different cells. Well, your diet, how much you sleep, your exercise, your stress level, how much love you have in your life, loneliness, how much you learn, all of these things are affecting the biochemistry of your body, which in turn affects chemical modifications on whole sets of genes like programs that then determine your health. This used to be very controversial. Even when, I, when we first started writing super genes, I remember um, uh, there was a tweet that came from Richard Dawkins, famous author who's more of a Darwinian genetics person. And he said, I can't wait for epigenetics to have its 15 minutes of fame. It's a tweet you can find. And I thought, wow, you know, here's a pretty famous guy, and even he doesn't really buy this. But now, now there are whole companies. There's a whole pharmaceutical industry based on how to modify your genome to be healthier if you're not doing a good enough job with your lifestyle. There's no question about it. But even though epigenetics has been around since the 40s, its place in medicine and its validation has only been really over the last five or 10 years. Amazing. So that's where we get all these thoughts that changing your thoughts can actually change your chemical milieu, like the work of Nobel scientist Elizabeth Blackburn, demonstrating that negative versus positive cogitation actually has an effect on your cellular milieu, which can then lead to cellular aging. Negative thoughts make you age faster, which sounds like some weird new agey hippie thing, but actually is demonstrated by the kind of scientific process that you just described. Yeah. In fact, you know, I wrote about it in the book. So Deepak Chopra and I and my colleagues, Elizabeth Blackburn and Alyssa Appel, we published in the Nature Journal um, Translational Psychiatry, a study on meditation, where we said, you know, you, read, you can read in Vogue magazine or whatever, meditation is good for you, but where's the science? Well, science, what do we do? We measure stuff, right? At the, at the end of the day, validating stuff with science means you figure out what to measure, you measure it, and you look for a significant change due to something you do. So meditation, does med meditation lead to changes in the genome. So we had 60 women at a resort and uh, we broke them up into groups where 30 of them were just going to be at the resort enjoying themselves. And the other 30 were going to be at the resort eating the same food, everything, but they were going to be doing an intensive meditation course, learning how to meditate for one week. And then there were 30 other women who were their trainers. They were expert meditators who would be doing intense meditation for a week. And it turned out that in those who were meditating, the anti-aging enzyme, telomerase, so Elizabeth mm -hmm. Blackburn got their Nobel Prize for discovering telomerase, which is what the enzyme that makes the tips of the chromosomes stay together. I like to think of it like a shoelace and some little plastic thing falls off and the shoelace starts to fray. Well, same thing with your chromosomes. As the, as the ends get too short, the cell ages and, and can die. So telomerase builds out the chromosome tips to keep cells healthy. Well, in the meditating group, depending on if they were beginners or expert meditators for one week of meditation, in blood cells that we looked at, with Elizabeth Blackburn, there was a 20 to 40% increase in telomerase activity in the meditators versus the non-meditators. And then we looked at expression of the entire genome in the blood cells of those meditating versus not. 
And we did that with a very famous geneticist at Mount Sinai, Eric Schott. And what we saw was that all of these changes in genes that came with meditation were all beneficial, were all salutary. There were changes in genes involving inflammation, changes in Alzheimer's genes, all in the right direction toward health, just due to one week of intensive meditation. So these are the types of studies you have to do to bring this new age idea of meditation and yoga out of, you know, the woo-woo, you know, I, I don't know if I believe it or not, into true scientific validation. And now we actually started a new center for brain health at Mass General that I co-direct, the McCants Center for Brain Health, that is doing all this type of stuff, looking at meditation, yoga, Ayurvedic diet, effects of stress, loneliness on brain health. And we're, we're validating, which we normally have read in you know, a popular magazine, getting it into science, scientific journals. That's amazing. So one week course of meditation actually increased telomerase activity by 20 to 40%. Yes. So that means that they had 20 to 40% more little ends on the end of their DNA, more little plastic on the end of your shoelace to protect it. And exactly. telomerase is a measure of cellular aging. So we can actually think about those cells as you know, being less old or your cellular aging decreasing with that course of meditation. They stay functional. They don't become what's called senescent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, look, aging of the mind and body begins with aging of the cells. Keep your cells healthy. It's all one continuum. And the issue with cells is as they age and they start to become senescent, the enemy is inflammation. Body inflammation, inflammation in the brain. Inflammation is what takes you out. So we're constantly with everything we do, whether it's diet or sleep or meditation, we're trying to avoid inflammation as we get older. This is all amazing. We see people once in a while, very rare, but you see people who die in the 80s and 90s, and then on autopsy, they have tons of plaques and tangles in their brain, but they didn't have any signs of Alzheimer's. They were resilient. And you say, well, what makes that brain resilient? Well, two things. All the neurons were intact. The synapses were intact. Okay, fine. But why did the neurons die to the point of dementia? There was no inflammation. If there's no inflammation, you can live with a head full of plaques and tangles. Wow. So now we're developing drugs to stop the neuroinflammation. We have one in a phase three clinical trial right now that we're very hopeful about. And I write books like The Healing Self because the whole book's about how to avoid neuroinflammation in the brain with your lifestyle, where I use this uh, acronym SHIELD. SHIELD your brain, where each letter of SHIELD stands for what you need to do in your life to minimize neuroinflammation. That way, as you get older, you can get these plaques and tangles to come with age. But if you can stave off neuroinflammation, you can stave off the symptoms of Alzheimer's, stave off dementia. So please tell us how to manage neuroinflammation. Everyone listening wants to know. So SHIELD, right? S stands for sleep. Mm -hmm. You really need to sleep eight hours. Try to sleep eight hours. If you can't get eight hours of sleep straight, take naps during the day and make sure you have a dream cycle and sleep after it. So right after REM or dream sleep, you go into the deepest sleep called slow wave sleep. And that's when the brain literally, I like to call it mental floss. It cleans itself out. Also during sleep, you consolidate your memories. All of the short-term memories on the uh, thumb drive in your midbrain start to get consolidated on the hard drive in the frontal cortex and you start consolidating memories. So a lot of good things happen during sleep. You also can undergo new nerve cell 
birth. If people think you can't have new nerve cells in the brain, you can. And the area of the brain affected in Alzheimer's, the hippocampus, the hippocampus is Greek for seahorse because it looks like a seahorse. You can grow new nerve cells, and, they ha and that happens especially during sleep and during exercise. So you might have already guessed the E is going to stand for exercise. So S is sleep. H, yes, H is uh, handle stress, meaning meditate, you know, managing expectations, just handling um, stress. I like to say just be the observer by being the witness of what your brain is experiencing. You can best handle stress. You know, you should never say I'm angry. To say I'm angry is as crazy as saying I am that red car that I see driving by. If you see a car, a red car, you say, I see a red car. You know that your brain's bringing you the image of a red car thanks to your eyes and your visual cortex. But if that red car drives through a puddle right next to you and gets you soaked, okay, you're going to feel wet, right? You might not like that. And now your brain trying to protect you is going to make sure you don't like that. Because, you know, if you keep getting soaked and wet by a car, that car might hit you someday. You might catch pneumonia and die. So now your brain saying, hey, wait a minute, that wasn't good. So now your brain brings you the feeling of anger. Your brain brings you the feeling of anger. So now you could say, I'm angry. That car splashed me. But that's just crazy saying, I am that red car. It's just your brain bringing the real you, the observer, the feeling of anger to protect you in the future, to not put yourself in that situation. So you'd never say, I'm angry. You'd say, I am experiencing the feeling of anger. That's what my brain's doing for me right now. Thank your brain. And then that way that helps to manage stress because you don't have to, you know, deal in these negative emotions. Now someone say, well, wait a minute. I like, what about what? Happy. I want to say I'm happy. Well, no, it's the same thing. Your brain's bringing you the feeling of happiness. Figure out how to do that more often. But, you know, you are always the observer of everything going on in your brain, even feelings, whether they're good or bad. You observe them, experience them, you can enjoy them, but don't identify with them. It's your brain doing its job. So you can get off the thought train. It's not that I am angry. It's that there's the sensation of anger happening and I'm experiencing it rising and then falling. And I can make choices based on it, based on the information that it gave me, or I can choose not to act on it in any way. All right. And that's great for your deal with stress. Plus, of course, a meditation practice is great. And hanging out with people you like. And that brings in the I, interaction. You have to stay interacting, interactive. Loneliness is a risk factor for Alzheimer's. Remember, not being alone. If you're alone and you're happy, that's fine. If you're alone and you don't like it, that's loneliness. Yeah. And that stress can cause increased risk for Alzheimer's. And people who have the greatest circle of friends and family tend to be most protected against Alzheimer's. There are epidemiology studies to show that. So staying interactive is, is important. And then E is exercise. During exercise, we have actually a, a, a new paper coming out in the journal Science, which is a very high-impact journal, showing how the brain actually grows new nerve cells during exercise, the molecular mechanism. And in fact, we, we learned how to, how to mimic the beneficial effects of exercise in the brain, where you grow new nerve cells and fight inflammation. Um, pharmacologically. So in the end, we were able to give, it, it, you could have the mice exercising on running wheels, and these were mice with Alzheimer's, and they had less Alzheimer's pathology, and they got smarter, rather than having, you know, cognitive issues. 
but we also figured out how to give them two different drugs that mimic the effects of exercise. I used to work in a neurogenesis lab, and whenever we'd want to induce neurogenesis, get the rats to create new neurons in the dentate gyrus of the hippocampus, we'd do something very, very simple, like you described. We'd put them on a running wheel. And it was sort of extraordinary that, you know, neurogenesis, building new neurons is this thing that we all hope to achieve. You know, our brains could be so much better if we could make new neurons all the time. And the only thing you'd have to do that was exercise, put a rat on a running wheel, be the rat on the running wheel. Yeah, yeah. I mean... It's a lot easier than spending three years trying to get this paper into science and (laughs) the entire molecular pathway. Just get them around. So that's the key. L is learn new things, what we're doing right now. So if our listeners are learning new things, then they're protecting their brain. Yay! If they're falling asleep, we're still protecting their brain. So it doesn't, you know, we win either way. Uh, (laughs) But but in learning new things, what you do is, you know, basically dementia and Alzheimer's is directly correlated with loss of synapses. Mm -hmm. So we talk about synaptic reserve. This is another part of resilience of the brain besides neuroinflammation. So the way you make new synapses is simple. You learn new things. So I tell people when you're going to retire, think just as much about synaptic reserve as you do about financial reserve. Build up your synapses, learn new things, because you strengthen your existing synapses. You find new pathways to information. So when you want to remember something, Think about it. In fact, every time you learn something, you're associating it with something you already know. So you just develop a new pathway back to memorizing something you might forget in the future. So that's L for learning. For context, a synapse is the relationship between two neurons. So the information travels along the neuron and then it makes a relationship with the next neuron at the synapse. That's yes. where you have the communication between neurons with neurotransmitters, et cetera. So when you're making new synapses, what you're doing is you're making new connections in the brain. So we talk about your synaptic reserve. We're talking about the number of connections that you make. Exactly right. And then the the D you might have guessed is diet. So diet includes what is the best diet for the brain. And that's pretty clear from many different studies. The Mediterranean diet, meaning less meat or no meat. Of course, I'm a vegetarian, so I'm biased. But in Mediterranean diet, you replace meat with more fish, more fruits, vegetables, nuts, fiber. Don't wipe out butter, but have olive oil together with butter, you know, so you kind of mix those up. That sounds really delicious, by the way. Yeah. You know, mushrooms, which have antioxidants. You want to have a lot of deep, dark, leafy greens. In both of my last books, in the Supergenes and in the Healing Self, we talked in detail, probably too much detail about exactly what to have in your diet to fight neuroinflammation and to um, keep your gut microbiome happy. So a lot of your brain health depends on your, the bacteria that live in your gut. And the gut microbiome or your gut bacteria are making chemicals and signals that are constantly being fed to the brain via your gut-brain axis, the vagus nerve. It's amazing. We've done recently in Alzheimer's mice where we could reduce the number of plaques in the Alzheimer's mouse brain by simply changing the bacteria in their gut. Really? Yeah. And in other studies, in multiple sclerosis, where there's lots of inflammation in the brain, if you take a mouse that's been given multiple sclerosis and you give it the gut microbiome of a healthy mouse, you can actually reduce the inflammation in the multiple sclerosis mouse brain. So your gut microbiome controls inflammation in the brain, it controls Alzheimer's pathology, it even controls mood. So the way you take care of your gut microbiome, of course, is with probiotics, 
meaning foods like yogurt or the liquid yogurt kefir or fermented foods, pickles. It also means fiber, so prebiotics. So, you know, look, your bacteria and your gut love roughage. They love fiber. And that's when they thrive. In fact, if you're paying a lot of money for an expensive probiotic, uh, which I do, if you had the right prebiotic diet with enough fiber and roughage and greens in your diet, you wouldn't need that probiotic. You know, you take, take care of the bacteria you already have. That would take care of your brain. And then there are supplements. I mean, part of diet, I, there are a number of supplements I take every single day that I suggest to those who play sports. I consult for professional teams that, where they're at risk for injury in their brains. And there are supplements that I also recommend to them that help fight neuroinflammation in the brain because these guys are getting beaten in the head in sports they play need more help than others to keep inflammation down in their brains as well. Yeah. So we can talk about some of the supplements too. I unfortunately suffered a concussion a few years ago. And of course, doctors tell you that there's nothing you can do. But with the background in neuroscience, it was really obvious to me that there was lots I could do. So one of the first things I did was I reached out to my buddy, Rudy Tanzi, world expert on neuroinflammation and said, hey, Rudy, what should I do? And Rudy, do you remember the first thing that you told me? The first thing I told you? The first thing you replied back was cat's claw, oolong tea, and probiotic. And I was like, right. I just reached out to the world expert in neuroinflammation who's, you know, identified three early onset familial Alzheimer's genes. And he's telling me to take cat's claw and oolong tea. So can you talk a little bit about some of the supplements that you do recommend so that others can benefit from the knowledge that I've had and why they're helpful? Yeah. So I would say, you know, first, just, just the caveat is that, you know, any supplement you're going to take, let's like say check with your doctor first, because you never know uh, what other meds you might be on or whatever. So uh, with that caveat aside, I developed with my colleagues this Alzheimer's in a dish model where we recreate the pathology of Alzheimer's. And then because it's in a Petri dish, or actually it's in tiny little wells where each mini brain is the size of a button, we can test hundreds of, if not thousands of drugs and natural products at a time to see which one stop the plaques, the tangles, which one stop the neuroinflammation. So among the natural products we tried, there's a vine in the rainforest in Peru. The way it grows is it looks like it has a cat's claw on it. So it's called cat's claw. And that particular powder from the cat's claw vine had a very strong effect on reducing plaques, tangles, and neuroinflammation in the Alzheimer's in a dish. So a colleague of mine, Alan Snow, had been working on cat's claw for a long time. And uh, he developed a company. And for transparency, I helped him with the company. So I have some equity in the company. So for conflict of interest purposes. And the product is called Percepta. So that's one I highly recommend. And I take myself is uh, Percepta. And then um, probiotics, of course, and a probiotic diet. And uh, if you're taking a probiotic, take a big one. Take a 50 billion or 100 billion. Because there are a lot of bacteria in your gut. There are trillions. And so... If you take one of these tiny little 1 million probiotics, it's, it's literally a drop in the, in the bucket. And uh, we're still learning about which bacteria are best for you in the probiotic. But you want to have one with at least 10 or 11 or 12 different probiotic bacteria in it. And then um, the other thing that I take every day is nicotinamide riboside. So this is um, an enzyme that increases your cellular energy, or NAD+. 
So nicotinamide riboside um, is sold by various companies. I think Chromadex is the company that has the patent on it. So they, they sell it as Niagen, but other companies also sell it. And what NAD does, if you have more NAD, you get more cellular energy. So let's say you have a nerve cell that's being threatened by amyloid plaques. It's shown that you can actually make them resilient to forming the tangles by giving them more cellular energy. If you have a glial cell that's housekeeping, but now it's starting to think about becoming more inflammatory, like a soldier fighting in the brain, killing nerve cells, by giving it more energy, it keeps housekeeping. So when you give cells more energy, they live longer, they function better, and that's what Niagen does, is it increases energy at the cellular level. So I take my Niagen every day too. And there are, of course, some obvious other ones that we can talk about, like high DHA fish oils, curcumin. Yeah, and I don't do fish oil because I'm, A, because I'm vegetarian, and B, I worry about heavy metals in fish oil because uh, unless the fish oil is very expensive, triple distilled from a very good source, you know, I worry about these friends of mine who buy these giant buckets of fish oil pills for like five bucks. I'm like, man... You know, this isn't regulated. You don't know how much mercury and stuff is in there because, you know, the oceans have a lot of heavy metals now, unfortunately, and the fats of the fish concentrate them. So you really got clean fish oil. Okay. So we'll change the recommendation to krill oil and flax. Yeah, I don't do krill either. I do, okay. I actually do um, omega-3 from algae. Oh. I'll give the brand name if it's okay. I use Spectrum. I don't have a relationship with them. I don't know who Spectrum is, but Spectrum makes a vegan omega-3 from algae that's high DHA and EPA. Those are the two you want, DHA and high EPA, high DHA. And flaxseed is also very helpful. The reason why I don't do krill is it, uh, it makes you burp. Yes, <laughs> yeah. the fish burps. It's not a pleasant burp. So the algae-derived the algae DHA and EPA do away with that. But yeah, they're very important. Another one for getting rid of amyloid plaque from the brain with some scientific studies from mice behind it it's something that's been taken in southern India for thousands of years, uh, which is ashwagandha. Mm-hmm. Ashwagandha is a root. In the Sanskrit, ashwagandha means sweat of the horse because it smells, it smells bad. It smells like a sweaty horse. And so you chew this root. In southern India, they chew the root. Apparently, it gets you very bad breath if you chew the root. You don't want to do that. But, it, but they've been using it for senility there for for a thousand years and now you can buy a, ta- a, a, a capsule of it of ashwagandha um, I use the Douglas Labs version because I tested it in the lab and um, ashwagandha helps export the plaque amyloid out of the brain that's something you take at night because it can make you sleepy and again with all of these supplements just because they're not drugs doesn't mean you, you have to think twice about them you know you still want to check with your doc if you're on other meds or have conditions if they're safe for you yeah, I certainly have t- taken uh, 50 plus different supplements over my concussion journey, maybe more, some of which worked really well, some of which didn't work, some of which have great efficacy in the lab, like Biacalin that can reduce inflammation significantly. And for me, it felt like I just took a date drug and was completely whacked out. Um, wow. So certainly, certainly be careful in what you take, but there are things that you can do for your brain to manage inflammation. Yeah, vitamin D. You know, of course. D, D2, 
uh, vitamin B12, especially the chewable, the, the methylcobalamin that's more absorbable uh, in B12. So these are all things, especially as you get older, you know. So, um, you know, thinking about taking those. You know, we just had a big study come out showing that different types of herpes viruses can drive amyloid plaque in the brain, where the plaques, it turns out the plaques are trying to protect the brain. So we think about these plaques as bad guys, but, you know, now we, what we're seeing is that the plaques are actually being made in response to small amounts of virus and bacteria in the brain, not clinical infection, you know, very low-grade levels where like a single virus, herpes virus, or a single bacterium can actually trigger a whole plaque in just 24 to 48 hours, where the plaque is trying to trap the microbe and protect the host cell, protect the cells in the brain. This is extremely interesting. So there have been floating in the ether a set of theories around why amyloid beta is created in the brain at all. And you sometimes see bacterial infections. You'd find fungus in a Alzheimer's brain. Mm -hmm. They started to see viruses in mm -hmm. Alzheimer's brains. And people would wonder, well, why do we create these this amyloid beta? And is there a relationship between these pathogens? So can you explain a little bit more about that in your recent paper? Yeah. So my colleague, Rob Moyer, and I, going back to 2010, published the first paper that the beta amyloid in the plaque is a very potent antimicrobial. That the, the small protein that makes the plaque called amyloid beta is actually uh, a very potent antimicrobial. So when, as soon as it sees bacteria or virus or fungus, it binds to it and it sticks the bacteria and viruses or fungus together. And then it builds a web like a spider. It builds a web of fibrils around it, like a spider building a web. You know, like when a spider puts a fly into the web, and cordons it off in a plaque. And it turns out the plaques, in this case, are an attempt to trap the microbe and keep it away from the nerve cells or the glial cells in the brain. And this is still somewhat controversial. It's brand new. Our lab first discovered it. And now, in two very recent papers that are coming out in the journal Neuron, a group from Mount Sinai found that there's more of certain herpes viruses in Alzheimer's brain, specifically the viruses that cause that red rash on a baby's cheek when the infant's roseola, these viruses are called HHV6 and 7, or human herpes virus 6 and 7. And they seem to be more abundant, and they get reactivated when you get older. And then the plaques form, because those plaques are trying to trap that virus and keep it away from cells so it doesn't you know, spread and replicate. But once you form the plaques, now they start to trigger the Alzheimer's disease. So then... You make, them, you make them to defend the brain, but then they start to trigger the tangles and the inflammation. And, and over time, that can lead to dementia. But what we're saying is when, you know, if we have drugs that are going to hit plaques, which we do, first of all, you have to use them very early because the plaques hit start a decade or so before the symptoms. But we also say don't wipe out the amyloid beta. Like taking a statin to, to lower your cholesterol, dial it down, dial down the amyloid beta. Don't wipe it out because we think the brain needs it. Just like if you're taking a statin like Lipitor, you don't want to wipe out your cholesterol. You just bring it down to a safe level to try to avoid heart disease. This is one of the ways that will eventually treat Alzheimer's is, you know, at 50 years old, let's say you get your brain scanned for amyloid, the same way you have a colonoscopy. And if you have too much, then you take drugs to bring it down, but not wipe it out. 
Okay, this is completely amazing. So anybody who's familiar with Alzheimer's and the concept of amyloid beta always thinks about it as the absolute enemy. You know, your brain is deteriorating because you have these plaques and these plaques are awful things. Now what we're hearing is potentially these plaques are arising because it's attempting to help the brain because amyloid beta is antibacterial and antimicrobial. So the thing that's actually trying to help us in large quantities is actually the thing that creates this rapid and and dastardly destruction of our brain and of ourselves. Yeah. You know, in aging research, we have this very complicated term called antagonistic pleiotropy. (laughs) It's not a dinosaur. Yeah. What's good for you early on is bad for you later. So this is the same thing. You know, the plaques are good for you early on when they're protecting your brain. But if they they accumulate to too high a level, they trigger Alzheimer's. And that's why, you know, if you hear about all these trials that failed in Alzheimer's, they were targeting the plaques. Remember, they were targeting plaques in these trials in people who already had the disease. They already had dementia. Well, those people those had those plaques 10 years ago, 15 years ago, right? The plaques were like the match, the tangles, the brush fires, the inflammations, the forest fire. That's when you start to get dementia. So if you're treating people with dementia with drugs to hit the plaques, it's like trying to put out the forest fire by blowing out the match. And so you really have to use those drugs very early. That's why hitting neuroinflammation is the best bet for helping patients suffering right now. And in some cases, you need drugs to do that because they're so far along. We have a drug like that in phase three trials with a company called AZ Therapies that I'm very hopeful about. But meanwhile, what can you do every day? I mean, that's why I write these books with Deepak Chopra. Every single day, what can you do with your choices you make by celebrating the fact that you have choice? And what can you do in your lifestyle? And that's when we get back to shield, you know, sleep, yeah. and meditating and interaction and exercise and learning new things and washing your diet. But every day you wake up, you have to make the choice to make the choice. And what's really cool about the brain and your genes is that once you make a choice enough times, like 60 days on average, you create a new habit. And once you create a new habit, you've programmed your genes in your brain to stick with it. So now eating the right food or getting enough sleep becomes automatic because now it's programmed. But it it takes about 60 days on average to to turn an old habit into a new one at the level of genetic programming by epigenetics and neuroplasticity in your, your neural network. So if you stick with it for 60 days, then it's autopilot. You just gotta do that work for 60 days. Fantastic. So I know you work with quite a number of individuals, helping them to establish a meditation practice and enhance their brain. And Muse is often a part of that. Can you talk about that a little bit? As you know, I'm a big fan of uh, of Muse, and my family and I use ours all the time. Even my little ten year old daughter, she loves it. You know, Muse is a feedback system, so you learn how to meditate. I love the ocean program, you know, because I love the ocean. So, um, you know, getting that ocean from a stormy sea down to just uh, small waves lapping on the shore, it's just a wonderful feeling. And uh, so the the, the sounds are are guiding you to where you need to be to make sure you have a clear mind. And there's also the forest, you know, um, you can do. But what's really cool is when you get down to really low, you can hear gentle little bird tweets. And, um, Jokingly, in my family, we've developed a competitive meditation. <laughs> so, no, I, I say this joking, but basically, you know, you, you set, set up the program to meditate for three or five minutes. 
And of course, it, w- it will give you the readout of where, you know how how far down in your wavelength you can go to that relaxed state. It tells you when you pop back up, whether you recover or not. And then if you get really down to that state where the brain is most is enjoying the most um, repair and healing, uh, you hear these little birds tweet, you know, amidst the ocean sounds. So my wife and daughter and I had a competition. See who could get the most birds in three minutes. And I think my wife and I got 12 to 14, which isn't bad. You know, it means we meditated pretty well. But my daughter, who was nine at the time, in three minutes got 43 bird tweets. I didn't even think that was possible. So I noticed that when she was had the band on, the whole time she had this, this face of just pure joy, like she was about to start laughing. And I said, we said, how did you do 43 birds? And she said that she just thought of the happiest and funniest things she could. And it was really telling, it's teaching that, that she was able to get herself so relaxed by just focusing on the things that made her happy or that she found funny. I thought it was a real lesson for us old folks who don't do that enough. Amazing. Thank you so much, Rudy. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Anytime. It's been an amazing conversation. Thanks for letting us inside your head. (laughs) Thanks for coming in. (laughs) Okay, so the music that we're listening to right now, those groovy vibes, that's actually Rudy playing on his organ. As I mentioned earlier, on top of his scientific achievements, Rudy's a fantastic musician. You can hear this track and more groovy vibes on numberonemusic.com slash Rudy Tanzi. That's R-U-D-Y-T-A-N-Z-Y. Rudy also shared so many more insights on the brain, creativity, and Alzheimer's that we couldn't fit it all into this episode. So if you want to hear the full conversation and links to his book, you can find them on arielgarten.com. A-R-I-E-L. G-A-R-T-E-N. And if you want to learn more about Muse, you can check out choosemuse.com. Next week, Patricia will be back with more Untangled.